Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill, and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought, what better way to do this than to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories? This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. When it comes to health and nutrition, there are so many mixed messages. Do we eat carbs or not? Fat is now good for us, but not too much. Coffee and wine are an essential part of every balanced diet. Okay, maybe I made up that last one, but it's an absolute minefield. On top of all of that, we live busier, more stressed out lives, constantly comparing ourselves to everyone around us, and our bodies and health are paying the toll. Dr Libby Weaver has dedicated her work to unpacking the myths and reconnecting people to their beliefs and emotions around health and nutrition. She is one of Australasia's leading nutritional biochemists, a 10-time best-selling author. Like, just think about that. That's 10 times. So amazing. She's a speaker and a founder of food-based supplement range BioBlends. This conversation with Libby is one of the most real conversations I've had in this series and there were moments in our chat where I had to hold back the tears and felt goosebumps as we really, really just scratched the surface of how we can hold back the tide of overwhelm and truly connect with who we are. One of the clues that we came up with was to simply watch more sunsets and it's one that I'm going to take forward. So make sure you let everyone around you know that you're not available for the next little while as you tune in to this conversation with the beautiful and the warm Dr. Libby Weaver. Dr. Libby, welcome to the studio. Ali, thank you. It's such a delight to be hanging out with you. And there's so much around your research around biochemistry and understanding human bodies and um, the interaction of hormones and all of that that I want to get into. But it's also deliciously sciencey and nerdy, really. (laughs) (laughs) So my first question is, were you like that as a a child, like growing up? Were you kind of the the nerdy science or is that something that evolved later? Uh, It was was always part of my little character. I was a bookworm as a child and a keen observer of nature and and patterns in nature as well as human behaviour. I can remember asking the question as a really young child, I wonder why people do what they do even though they know what they know? And that question has fostered a huge amount of my own learning personally and also the work that I do in the world. So um, I wasn't very good at science at school. It was the thing I found the most difficult. It was the thing that I had to work the hardest at. And uh, I I wasn't even going to do chemistry in the last couple of years of high school. But And my dad, who's a very soft, gentle man, never put his foot down about anything. He, I remember him saying to me, you know, I don't tell you to do much, but I really want you to do chemistry in your final years of school because it's the basis of life. And because he was not a bossy sort of dad, I really took that on board and and did that. He meant that, right? He he really, he really did. And uh, I found it incredibly challenging to learn it, but blew my mind at the same time. And uh, so, but then when I went to do nutrition and dietetics at university, one of the prerequisites was high school chemistry. So I was like, thanks, dad. (laughs) And then I guess the other part of this for me was I then found biochemistry at university incredibly easy to learn because it was connected to something that I cared about very much, which was nutrition and the way the human body actually worked. So I think uh, the, the message I've always taken out of linking all of that from my past is sometimes when we find learning something difficult, if we link it to something that's meaningful to us, it can make a difference. I know a girlfriend was having uh, trouble with her little boy wanting to participate in maths class. Uh, His behaviour was far from ideal in only in maths class. And uh, to cut a long story short, they ended up, he was really passionate about art. And so they helped him understand that when he was all grown up, he'd have to sell his art and he'd have to understand maths to be able to make a living out of his art. So um, it There's reinforces a good that message. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I want the books to balance and yeah. I want this artwork to matter. That's it. Yeah, such an important lesson. Growing up, was there um, 
you know, was there one kind of parenting style that influenced you more or and you know, how did they kind of impact on developing who you are today? Uh, they're, yeah, they're, I'm great friends with both my parents still to this day which, and I'm very grateful for how they raised me and they've, they're both very soft, quiet, gentle, kind people. We lived very simply. We had chickens in the backyard and grew a lot of our own vegetables and um, so I learned about food from a very young age but I learned about it from a nutrition perspective so Mum never said, even though it was the low-fat era and um, every second magazine definitely had stories about, you know, counting calories and donate fat back then. <laughs> that was Fat was the enemy back then, how times change. Um, but instead of um, the mother-daughter influence with food was never about calories or restriction. It was very much about, well, you know, an orange is a great food to choose because it's rich in vitamin C and that's great for your immune system. And if you have a strong immune system, you don't get as many colds. So she educated me just gently, just conversationally, not with a sit-down lecture or, yeah. And and to be honest, we just had whole real food in the house. It was it was partly a financial thing. There was just not the money for, for processed food and what Back then, they were very much birthday party foods, and sadly for too many people, they've become part of every day. But um, yeah, it, w- it was very simple. It was they. My parents never in, never pushed me to do anything. They very much allowed me to to just um, pay attention to what I cared about and to to learn more about those things. So yeah. And when you went into your academic study, was there ever a thought for anything else? Was there anything else on the table? Or it was always going to be dietetics uh, and nutrition. Uh, it was actually journalism first. Yeah, right. <laughs> so uh, I finished school and I had no idea what I wanted to do other than write. And I was never, I would never, ref- and still to this day, I would never refer to myself as ambitious. Um, I don't ever, I don't plan anything. <laughs> I, my, the people, my poor team that I work with find that a bit tricky. But um, <laughs> so you coming up with ideas and going, right, let's, let's, let's go. Do, yeah, I, I do my absolute best to just trust my instinct. And um, yeah, so all I ever knew was that I would write books. That was my own, but I didn't know what they'd be about. It, it might've been fiction. Maybe it was going to be about, yeah, my, whatever my passion sort of was. And so I loved writing from a young age. Um, and so it was a natural progression for me then to think, okay, well, journalism is probably a good career fit for me then. Uh, I didn't like it at all. I found that I only wanted to write about, uh, health, nutrition, psychology, that type of thing. So then I, so I pulled out of that and then started a psychology degree (laughs) and that wasn't what I was expecting either. (laughs) The stats and and rats and stats was just the first, the beginning part of it for for too long. And uh, I was impatient with that and wanted, I wanted the juice of why humans did what they did. Mm. Uh, And so to cut a long story short, I realised that I'd only ever, I realised that with university education, you needed to be so self-directed. And I thought I have to do something that I deeply, truly care about and can just naturally want to learn myself. And I thought, what is that? That's nutrition. I've read about nutrition for pleasure uh, my whole life. So um, I was fortunate to, to get into that degree and loved it. It was very sciencey. Um, huge amounts of biochemistry, immunology, microbiology, and I treasure that science foundation that I have. It it helps me to work out fact from fiction and fads uh, because there is there are some fundamental ways that the body works that you know no marketing nutrition sort of marketing ploy is going to fool me is <laughs> is uh, is going to work. So I'm very grateful for that science foundation, uh, and but of course. The, the the biochemistry and the nutrition uh, were just two pillars of of my work, and we d- we have to do three years of psychology as part of that nutrition degree, um, and but it's all f- obviously food related when it's part of a nutrition degree. So uh, at the end of my dietetics degree, I went on and did a PhD in biochemistry, and that was working with children with autism. And again, to this day, I feel really guided that I did that because I was never someone who was massively driven academically. I loved it. I loved learning, but I didn't see myself as this person in a laboratory. In fact, when the professor phoned me and said, you should do a PhD, I said, oh, I'm not in, I can't imagine working in a lab. I'm a, I think I'm a people person. Am I? I'm not, I don't know. (laughs) And he said, you can be both. And um, yeah, but so doing a PhD was one of the most rewarding mind-blowing experiences of my life. Would have been fascinating kind of research. So that interaction between food and and autism? Is yes. that what you were exploring? Yeah. So uh, I, 
the, there was a, a group of children with autism who had undergone some sort of treatment. There were children newly diagnosed who'd never been treated uh, with psychology, with speech therapy or anything nutritionally. And then there was a control group. And I took, I didn't personally take it, but I was supplied with blood, urine and faeces uh, samples from the children. So I always used to joke that uh, every day an esky would turn up with little poo samples in it <laughs> to the lab um, that I then had to analyse for the microbiological populations that lived in, in there. And we were then comparing that to what they were eating, any herbs or supplements uh, or medications that they were on, looking at all of those variables and uh, yeah, the the biggest finding, and, and it, this was all in the 90s, so it was very much when autism was still considered to be very much a neurological-based condition, and we now know, of course, that's part of it, but there's so much uh, gut-related stuff that's involved in the children and the healthier their gut gets. Um, for some of them, other health challenges start to improve. Um, yeah, so it was... It blew my mind. It was... I learned so much more than just about the children. I learned so much about families and community and care just the way uh the way the way those families were able to to function and and support and love those kids and the kids were enormous teachers for me personally I think as well as their own families it was yeah it blew my mind there's so many um avenues around health nutrition emotion psychology that that you've spoken about and that you share about and that your books are, are just jam-packed with what are some of the myths and I'm sure there's a ton but is there any that come to mind that you are finding even now um that people still refer to talk about either when it comes to food when it comes to health um when it comes to the relationship between food and emotions you know is there any particular myths that kind of jump to mind or you find yourself combating time and time again mm, that's such a gorgeous question thank you the the biggest standout for me is that when someone has been struggling with food for a long time now whether that is regularly overeating even though they know better to not do that, but they can't stop or they start eating and they can't stop. Um, or even if someone knows that they need to take better care of their food, but they think, oh, I can't be bothered. Or they, in other words, they still eat too much poor quality food versus what they know is actually good for them. Or the opposite end of all of those spectrums where people starve themselves to the point of almost destruction, uh, or they eat and then they binge uh, and make themselves sick. For me, in all of those situations, and the thing that I feel leads a penny to drop for people is that none of that is ever about the food, ever. It's the way they distance themselves from the way things are when they're not how they want them to be. And food is just the mechanism that they use for that. And while ever you focus on the food for someone in any of those situations, obviously for someone starving themselves, it's essential that you get them back eating mm. in some form. Of course, I'm not denying the important role food plays in sustaining life, of course. But in insofar as resolving that emotional connection that someone has to food moving forward into the future so that they have a wonderful relationship with food, so that food becomes nourishment for them, not an emotional thing like comfort or love or companionship or a numbing out or a lot of people use it as a celebration. Um, it's not always, you know, to cope with sadness. So if someone, if you, if we continue to just focus on bossing people around like an overeater, don't eat this, don't do that, stop doing they already know that. They'd have mm. to have their head buried in the sand to not know that they need to eat more vegetables and less processed food, for example. Yeah. But they no, don't do it. Knowledge is not enough. So it's, what gets in the way? So you're saying it's it's not the food. No. It's, it's all this other stuff. It's yeah, so when we that it's the distancing of how we perceive things are. And uh, I think probably it's probably best exemplified with a lady uh, I worked with a couple of years ago and she was 60 years old when she came to see me. And when I said, how can I help? What would you like to get out of this session? She said, I want to lose weight. But she said, I know why I'm overweight. It's because I can't stop eating cake after dinner. She said, so if your only solution is to tell me to stop eating the cake, I may as well leave now. You know, I already, <laughs> already know that. my money back. Yes, <laughs> yes. I already know that. So yeah. anyway, I asked her my millions of questions, everything from do you get headaches? Do you, have, do you get sinus congestion or pressure? Do you use your bowels every day? what was menopause like so all my millions of questions and then I get to the point in the session where I'll say are your parents still alive and because at that point I've only talked about physical health 
issues. I think most, I'm giving away all my secrets now, I think most people think I'm just looking for a family health history, is there heart disease or cancer in the family? And I'm looking for that, but not really. I ask that question because you can feel and see very quickly if there's a world of chaos or peacefulness in someone's past in connection with their family. So for this particular lady that I'm talking about, the 60-year-old lady, uh, it was very obvious that there was a world of, of pain back there. And when asked her to elaborate, what she shared with me was that uh, her mother died giving birth to her and her father hadn't spoken to her since she was 14. Gosh. And, and she was 60. She was 60, wow. yeah. And so the... Our I believe that our behaviour is the expression of our beliefs. So what I'm forever listening for when I'm, when I'm trying to support someone is for the, the... We often can't see our own beliefs, I don't think, but they come out in conversation. We know what we believe about external things, about politics, the environment, etc. but sometimes it's tricky to see what we believe about ourselves and who we perceive we have to be to be loved and to fit in and to never be ostracised or rejected or whatever, whatever words uh, work. So if our behaviour is the expression of our beliefs, that's what I was listening for with this lady. And when she said that her mother died giving birth to her and her father hadn't spoken to her since she was 16, the belief was the next sentence. She said, he sa she said, he loved my brothers enough to keep them. He didn't love me enough to keep me. Mm. And it was, she but she couldn't see that that was a belief she had about herself. It was just how her world it was. was. Just a fact. Yes, that's right. Than exactly. Anything that was driving behaviour. Exactly. Wow. So I asked her to elaborate on the story, and what she shared was that um, she was born in Ireland, uh, went home to a great. They lived on a great big farm. Couldn't see any neighbours for a really long way away. She had uh, four big brothers. The nearest one to her in age was thirteen. So there was a really big gap between her and her next brother, and she grew up with it there with her dad the four big brothers, uh, and she said she loved it. It was really quiet, but she helped with the house and she was really good at school. But then when she was 14, her father wrote a letter and he put her on a boat and sent her to New Zealand to be raised by a distant aunt and she never heard from him again. And so you can see from, it's not, she doesn't lie on the couch at night going, Dad doesn't love me, I better eat cake. <laughs> it's not conscious. She just doesn't understand why she wants to lose weight and she was uh, glucose impaired at this time, so she was going to go on to be diagnosed with type 2 diabetes if she didn't deal with this cake eating at night. So there was a lot of motivation for her to make some changes, but she she found she just couldn't stop. Yeah. So it's just that, that desire to distance ourselves from pain, but when because we don't sit there in the pain, it's we're not connected to why we're doing these things. So anyway, so I said to her, I believe people have beautiful hearts. I know their behaviour doesn't always demonstrate that, but I believe they've got beautiful hearts. So what if he sent you away because he loved you so much? Because you think about it from his perspective, he's prepared to send his one and only daughter to the other, you think she's 60 when I'm dealing with her, mm. to the other side of the world because she was good at school. He would have wanted her to have a better education than she could get living so remotely in Ireland. She was 14. She was probably just about to start menstruating. And as an already relatively elderly Irishman, he probably had no idea how to support her with that. So I said, what if he sent you away? Because he loved you so much. And she said, I've never thought about it like that. Mm. And I was a bit cheeky. And I said, well, you, t you said to me earlier, he's still alive. Could you get in touch with him? And she said, I could probably get a phone number. Yeah. And I said, well, why don't you ring him and ask him why he sent you away? And she did, and he, he gave her a version of what I just wow. said to you. So I th we live our lives often in a cloud of false belief about, about who we are and what we have to do and be to be loved. So it's not just in connection to food. I think this also relates very much to the choices that we make these days to rush around and try to... I think a lot of people knowingly or unknowingly try to be all things to all people and certainly I think as women we juggle more than ever before and there's beauty in that, there's kindness in that, there's a sense of community in and caring in all of that. But where my curiosity goes is why are some women able to maintain their health and still be of massive service to others and then others seem to not be able to maintain their health so are there, are, do women draw boundaries? Are there women who are better at saying no than others when they need to have an early night or shut the computer lid at five o'clock instead of 10 o'clock? Uh, so, and what gives some people the capacity to be able to draw boundaries with kindness and focus on their priorities rather than having to make the needs of 
85,000 people down the road that you don't even really know. Because <laughs> I should and yeah. I think everyone else is. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that although the rushing and and the stress and sometimes that involves poor quality food or, or overeating or starving ourselves, sometimes food is related to this, but other times it's not related to food at all. It, it's just the rush and the, the pent-up way, the intense way in which so many people live now and the, the stress hormones that makes and the way that impacts sex hormones. I think a really great question or a beautiful thing to see is that it comes from your caring. It comes because of your beautiful heart. We would never stress if we didn't care so much. Mm. <laughs> um, but there's a reason why the airlines say put, put your own oxygen mask on first because we really can't be of service to others when we're completely depleted. So I think the answer behind all of it is that you will do anything to keep everybody happy if you feel like your life depends on it. Yeah. And even though that's an extreme kind of statement, it's hardwired into us, I think, as humans, and what I think it's, it's hardwired into us as humans that love is essential for our survival because as babies, that's true. We can't get our own food. Uh, someone's got to care enough about us to meet those basic needs. But as adults, a life with love in it is delicious but we can get our own food and clothing and shelter so we can survive without it. But I think most people are still wired in their autonomic nervous system to live as if love is essential for their survival. And so when you subconsciously run a pattern or have a belief that you've got to keep everybody happy, it's almost like you're doing it, to, uh, to, you're prepared to sacrifice your own health. In other words, what you're saying to the universe almost is, I'm prepared to die <laughs> to keep you happy today. And we have to look at that as women. If that's my way of surviving. And I'm yep. I'm absolutely with you on, I think that belief is something that we don't often, we don't talk about. We don't even carve out time. As you say, we, we're not consciously aware of what drives our behaviour when we know uh, what works and what doesn't. I have a good friend of mine who's, who's based over in New Zealand, actually, Michael Henderson, and he talks about um, our belief behave and become. So what we believe mm. it informs our behaviour and therefore what we become. And one of the ways that he encourages people to start to think about what your belief is, is just to pose that question that look at your behaviour and say, what would someone have to believe in order to behave mm, like it. that? And mm. it's a great question, isn't it? Isn't if you've it? got no idea where to start, if you go, well, I don't know what my belief is, or yeah. I just believe that cake's great, <laughs> <laughs> because it can be hard without that safe environment of having someone who's mm. poking and, mm. and, and asking those, those really key questions, well, where do I even start? But mm. even just taking that step back, what would someone have to believe yeah, in so order good, to behave right? that, like mm. that is really powerful. So my work in psychology, and I think often um, there is this disconnect between body and mind, and mm. I think what you've just described is actually there's there's such a stronger connection. And I want to ask you about hormones in particular, because mm. and I think for me personally, as as a, a woman in business, as a mum, as a as a wife, I definitely have had times where you know hormones are absolutely running my world. Um, <laughs> And crazy, but I feel like, and I turn 40 um, in a couple of weeks, I feel like some of this knowledge and information is so new for me. And I don't know whether it's new in science or whether we just don't talk about the interaction around hormones, feeling good, their interplay with overwhelm. Mm. Um, so in in a nutshell, because I know you've got so much depth and research, how would you... Um, I guess, describe that interplay and what's the role of hormones in us feeling good versus mm. feeling overwhelmed? Mm. So such a great thing for all women of all ages, I think, to know and, and understand. So uh, well, there are two main sex hormones for women, or there are three, estrogen, progesterone and testosterone. I'll just focus on estrogen and progesterone for this conversation. Uh, so progesterone plays so many important roles in the body, not just in fertility and reproduction. Uh, we, in the first half of a woman's menstrual cycle, estrogen is the dominant sex hormone and her job is to lay the lining of the uterus down in preparation for a conception. So estrogen wants a menstruating female to get pregnant every single month of her life, whether that's on her agenda or not. <laughs> Go uh, body. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and at that point in the in the cycle, in that first half of the cycle, the only place we make progesterone from is from the adrenal glands, which sit just on top of our kidneys. And we make a lot of other hormones from the adrenals as well. So uh, progesterone reproductively, one of her jobs is to hold the lining of the uterus in place. 
she does lots of other things as well, but that's one of her main jobs. So we don't need a lot of it in the first half of the cycle because estrogen's laying it all down at that point. Uh, but biologically, progesterone plays many roles in the body. It's a very powerful anti-anxiety agent. It's an antidepressant and it's a diuretic. So it allows us to get rid of excess fluid. And it fosters really good thyroid function uh, as well, which and I think people think when they think of the thyroid, they tend to think of just weight loss <laughs> or weight gain. Um, but thyroid hormones are needed for every single cell in the body. Even your heart cells need thyroid hormones to work properly. So it, when, when your thyroid isn't working properly, every, every body system is affected. Everything slows down. Uh, so progesterone is needed for good thyroid function as well, which is, I don't think, often not talked about. So it has a lot of biological impacts. But as I mentioned, from the adrenal glands, we also make stress hormones. So adrenaline and cortisol are the two main ones. And science suggests that humans have been on the planet for about 150,000 years. Some argue longer, and that's probably true. Uh, but um, for 150,000 years, adrenaline was our short-term acute stress hormone that we made when there was a threat to our life. And in modern times, we're thankfully relatively safe compared to 150,000 years ago, but we make adrenaline for other reasons. And some people are going to want to block their ears right now because <laughs> uh, we make adrenaline when we consume anything that contains caffeine and also because of our perception of pressure and urgency. And I put the word perception there on purpose because there are certainly things that are urgent. If you get a phone call from school that your child's been injured, that's urgent. You want to get there as quickly mm -hmm. as possible. But we tend to, I think, make our emails and our to-do lists full of stress and pressure and urgency when there might be six things that are urgent, but the mm -hmm. other 50 aren't urgent. So anyway, I think we need to just be very aware of saving that perception of pressure and urgency for when we need it, not making what we have to do each day that kind of an experience. Um, anyway, so you've got adrenaline communicating to every cell in your body that your life's in danger. If And for so many of us, we live like that all the time. We warm up with caffeine every morning. Uh, we then get lots of new deadlines and piles of new emails and feel like we've got to keep everyone happy. Uh, and that can lead to a day where we feel quite pressured. So we're going to make adrenaline a lot over a day like that. And the body hasn't yet evolved to be able to discern between the adrenaline that we would make when there's a genuine threat, so like a car driving out in front of us and we've got to slam our brakes on, the body can't discern between the adrenaline we make from that experience versus the adrenaline we make from the three coffees we had this morning. So that's adrenaline. Then cortisol is the chronic stress hormone and the only chronic stress humans had in the past were floods and famines and wars. And if you think about all of those scenarios, food was scarce. In modern times, our chronic stress is usually related to financial concerns, relationship concerns, health concerns, or the health concerns of a loved one. But again, the body hasn't yet learnt to discern the difference between you worrying about your bank balance versus there being a famine. <laughs> so when you've got high circulating levels of adrenaline, your body still gets the message that your life's in danger in the in, in modern times. And when there's high circulating cortisol levels, the, the body still gets the message that there's no food left in the world. So a woman's body links progesterone to fertility. And so the last thing your body wants for you is to bring a baby into a world where it thinks you're not safe and there's no food. So the body thinks it's doing you a great big favour by shutting down your adrenal production of progesterone. Now, park the fertility aspect of what I've just said, because I could talk to you underwater about that for the next six hours. <laughs> the next podcast. <laughs> yeah. But think about biologically what else has just gone on. You've now stopped making a hormone that stops you feeling anxious, that stops you, that helps to stop you going to a low mood. And now you retain fluid. And you feel when, you, when a woman feels puffy and swollen and really uncomfortable in her skin, she's anxious about things she can't name uh, and she has a low mood. It's, I think when we feel like that, it's even worse when you can you can actually see that you've got this extraordinarily privileged life and it is privileged because all of our basic needs are met and still for too many people in the world, that's not the case. So you can look outside and see you have this privileged life, life but you can't connect to the gratitude that you know you're supposed to feel. You can add guilt to this whole messy mixture. <laughs> and when we, when we feel like that and we're, you know, swollen and puffy and uncomfortable and, and anxious and unhappy... It impacts everything. It impacts the food that we choose, whether we get off the couch and go for a walk or not, jobs that we would apply for, friends that we make, our self-talk and the way we speak to everyone we love in the world. So even though it sounds like, oh, it's just, you know, not enough progesterone, the ripple effect of that is enormous. And I believe that this compromised adrenal production of progesterone due to the constant and relentless output of stress hormones, I personally believe that's the biggest health challenge facing women in the Western world today. Because when 
when you've stopped making a hormone that allows you to demonstrate your kind and patient heart or your playfulness, so much of that gets masked by the anxious feelings that you live with all the time or the, or the unhappy feelings you live with all the time or this incredible discomfort in your body. So, and that's just the first half of the cycle. Yeah, yeah right, yeah, right. It's huge, right? Mm. And I'm sure there's plenty of people listening just going, oh, my gosh, that's that's me. And now I'm overwhelmed by how do I even stop that? Yeah, yeah. Um, because busy's not going away. I'm, I mean, on the one hand, what I'm hearing you saying is, is how I mean, our body is so incredible and amazing. And, mm. and so the things that we often look external to make us feel good, our body can produce that and yeah. we can actually tap into that. So what are some practical ways yeah. in amongst the busyness, knowing that we still have to go to work, we still yeah. have to get those the dinner on the table and the lunches made and meet those deadlines, uh, what are some practical ways that we might be able to counteract some of that cortisol? Yeah, so... The I, I try to give people pr- really practical ideas for lots of different parts of their lives and what I'm about to say is not a, another to-do list, <laughs> just FYI. Just pick one of these things and focus on it, I think, is probably the best way to go. So the first thing is when there are different parts of our nervous system and what we've talked about with adrenaline and the stress response is what we call when you live in with the sympathetic nervous system activated, that's essentially the fight or flight response. There's no problem being there every now and again, but we're just not supposed to live there and lots of people do. So what we want to do is activate the opposite arm of the nervous system, which is the really calm arm and it's called the parasympathetic nervous system. But we can't we can't get into that part of our nervous system with our mind, with our thoughts, and we can't boss it around. The only way science currently knows for us to actively activate the calm arm of the nervous system is to extend the length of our exhalation. So when I walk into a room, when I'm in a professional capacity, I don't do this with my friends or I wouldn't have any friends, uh, but I can't help but notice the way most of the people sitting there are breathing and most adults just breathe in a really short, sharp, shallow way at the top of their chest. That's adrenaline driving that. So their body is getting the message via their nervous system that their life's in danger. Whereas if you watch a baby breathe, they breathe in and out through their little nostrils and their little belly goes up and down as they breathe. So they're diaphragmatically breathing when they breathe like that. So we can all do this and a useful thing to do is to simply become breath aware. So do 20 long, slow breaths every hour on the hour, if you work at a computer desk, um, it might be that you do 20 long, slow breaths when you get up in the morning to boil the kettle, to have lemon juice and warm water, of course, um, instead of running around and doing lots of other jobs. Or every time you stop at red traffic lights, breathe diaphragmatically. Or other people love a regular ritual in their life of yoga or restorative yoga or stillness through movement or Pilates or Tai Chi or meditation or any breath focus practice is incredibly calming for the body and lowers stress hormones more effectively than anything. So being breath aware, number one. Number two, I do think we need, as women, we need to get honest with ourselves about how caffeine affects us. So there's been a wave of information in the media recently. It sort of comes and goes, oh, coffee's so good for us. And then you'll hear that that it's not. It's highly individual. There's no one way or no amount that is good for everybody to have. You need to notice how it makes you feel. Because if if you're already a very anxious person, that's adrenaline driving that predominantly. So if you then consume a substance that is going to lead your body to make more adrenaline, that can lead you into a really uncomfortable place. Whereas if someone's genuinely chilled out, one coffee probably just makes them focus better. So just observe how caffeine makes you feel. The third thing I'd say is explore your perception of pressure and urgency and save it for when you really need it. So uh, don't make what you've got to do every day Uh, full of pressure and urgency. It's a bit tricky, I think, to look at the to-do list when you've had a couple of coffees and not see it all as urgent. (laughs) So uh, less caffeine certainly, I think, helps that a bit. (laughs) Like your to-do list before you have your coffee. (laughs) But I think um, the fourth one is my own personal favourite of that, although with the work, I couldn't do the work that I do if I didn't do the other things I've already said as well. But this final one is, uh, I think, the big kicker for me. And that is... um, to really let ourselves, to let ourselves have what we already have because we're forever, so many people live forever in the pursuit of something or lots of things. And 
when we do that, we miss what's here right now. And so when we let ourselves have what we already have, for example, if you talk to someone who's dying and you ask them what they're going to miss, they will tell you the most simple things. They'll, they'll tell you that they're going to miss their partner's face or the feeling of their dog's fur under their fingertips or the smell of a freshly cut lemon or the night sky. Well, we have all of that right now. So why not let yourself have what you already have? Because that's what joy is all about. And joy gives us an irreplaceable depth of energy. And I don't think that's talked about enough in, in health-related circles. And then to bring the geeky science bit back, because <laughs> I can't help myself, <laughs> science has shown that we can do two things at once, but we can't focus on two things at once. So hello to all the multitaskers out there. <laughs> Who are probably in, typing emails while they're listening. <laughs> but uh, because we can't focus on two things at once, what that means is we can't focus on what we're stressed about in the exact same moment where we're focusing on appreciating or feeling grateful for what we already have. Mm. And so I don't want it to be cheesy, but the more we connect and have at the front of our mind or just this background this background sound of I'm so grateful, I'm, my life is so privileged, even though, yeah, stuff can go wrong. There are challenges, of course, but if you've got this background sound of that stuff's not the end of the world, you know, because this is all such a gift. It just helps us to, I think, experience more joy, to make less stress hormones <laughs> and, and to show up as, as our kind and beautiful selves. I think it's a reminder of just going what matters mm. right here, right now. And some days the thing that matters the most is I walk around the block mm. and actually have lunch. And yes, <laughs> yeah. look like, at the sky. Look at the sky. <laughs> and it doesn't take long and it's free. Yeah. Um, and it's almost like I think in this this now and, and pay for it kind of world, it's almost like really? that's No, it's got to be more than that. That's it. That's too simple. <laughs> Way too simple. Mm. And yet but it's the consistency mm. and the reminder of that as well. Mm. Um, so you've... You've, how many books have you written? I did start ten. counting ten books. It's an eleventh one, yeah, on its way. So, but ten at the moment. Yeah, yeah. over three hundred thousand sold, um, you know, internationally and all around the world. And with each one of those comes a gamut of um, book uh, conferences. You're out speaking. You've got your own um, programs and courses, and your calendar is is crazy sometimes. <laughs> so I want to ask you around, well, how do you manage your own busyness? Mm. Um, and probably first of all, my question is, what are your own signs of overwhelm where you're starting to get a bit stressed out? What are the triggers that you pay attention to? Mm. Uh, so in I can notice in my, my breathing alters and I'm mostly breathe from pretty low down in my belly. And so I can feel that immediately when it changes and I'm okay with that sometimes, but when whatever it's about has been, I, I deal with whatever it's about and then go drop back down into diaphragmatic breathing. So I can, the minute my breathing changes, I have an awareness of that. And I'm, I ask the question straight away, what's this really about? And sometimes it's a workload thing. Sometimes I've just had a conversation with someone and my heart's racing because there was something I needed to say and I didn't say it or something they said that I'm confronted by that I need to look at inside myself. So I try to always use that change in my breath. Uh, not at all. It's probably sounds really obsessive. I don't mean it in an obsessive way. I just have an awareness that mm. that's altered and I, I try and work out what that's about really quickly. Uh, so that happens. As soon as I feel like uh, the phrase will go through my head, oh, I don't have time to cook dinner tonight. That's my big, what are you doing? Yeah. Because that matters that's so important to me, to my own health and my own body. I'm obsessed with veg. I am obsessed with vegetables, uh, and they feature a lot, obviously, in in most of the things I eat, but particularly in the evening. And if that that's a real flag to me, because I think when any of us say that we don't have time for something, what we're really saying is that's just not a priority for me right now, and I have to try on if I'm comfortable with that. And sometimes I am going to be comfortable with that. I'm going to be comfortable with throwing together my fridge looks pretty good to be honest, but you know, I'm going to, I call it floor food. I'm just going to pull together my sauerkraut and my cashew nut cheese and, you know, bits and pieces of some boiled eggs or whatever I've got in my fridge. I'm going to pull that together and make a meal out of it rather than cook from scratch. But that's always one of my watch outs. Mm. Uh, and the other part of what you said, Ali, a couple of years ago, I asked myself, 
or, or the the phrase flew, flew into my head was today meaningful or and, and where or where was today meaningful and I thought I, I really liked it and I thought I'm going to ask that each ask myself that each day and then that was closely followed up by I don't feel like I'm someone who regrets things I very much trust the unfolding of things and even when it's tough like actually genuinely tough I trust that life happens for us that it doesn't happen to us I really I really live like that or by that uh, and so when I sat and thought, okay, if I'm not someone who lives with regrets because I feel like it's all kind of meant to be, but if I was going to regret something, what would I regret? And the first thing that flew into my mind was not seeing more sunsets because I was just working from sort of so early in the day I was all the way through until, you know, late at night and the the sun was setting without me even seeing it. And so I made a point of saying, well, I'm going to see absolutely as many sunsets as I possibly can from here on. And there are times when I, and it, it, and obviously in winter, it makes my workday shorter and I close the lid of my computer and I go outside and watch it set. And I'll be honest with you, there are times when I have to come back in and yeah. do another, <laughs> right. do another two or three hours <laughs> in the evening. <laughs> but there are times also when I don't, there are yeah. times when, yes, there's still a gazillion things that I could do, but mm, a quiet night would probably serve me way better. So that's been a big shift for me is closing the lid to watch the sunset. Yeah, sometimes I go back to it, but sometimes not, the lid stays shut. And that means my summer day work long, work days are longer than my winter ones. And I'm kind of enjoying that as much as I can with the whole concept of, you know, rugging up, hibernating a little bit more to come back out in the spring. Going with the seasons. Mm. I, I remember a friend many years ago actually saying to me, we were sitting watching the sunset up in Darwin, which then oh. sets over the ocean. So it's just stunning. Um, and he just, and I think it was just a throwaway phrase where he said, oh, it'll, it'll happen again tomorrow. And I just, my whole body went, oh, but tomorrow will be even more amazing. Like the, every sunset is just incredible. So yep. I think I'm going to take that one as well. <laughs> How many sunsets have I actually yeah. seen those, those little moments? Um, I love that so much of your your journalism is now part of your career <laughs> as well with with these um, these books that you you put out into the world. Is there anywhere that you write for yourself? Um, so you know where you have a love for words and a love for writing, mm-hmm. um, and often that can be then you know serving serving the people that are going to read it and still putting that out. Do you have a practice where you write for yourself as well? Yes, I do. Yes. Uh, so uh, I have a journal. It's in a was given to me by uh, a very dear friend in a beautiful um, wooden, has a wooden cover and the pages can slip in and out of that. And so I really treasure that. And I write poetry. I've written poetry since I was a kid uh, and really love it. And my favourite poet is David White. I love... Oh, um, he's amazing. Yeah, yeah he is. Beautiful. It's, um, I love the language he uses and the just the, his, the insight he brings from such simplicity. But anyway, he's, yes, he's my, definitely my favourite poet. Uh, so, yes, I write poetry. I have always journaled. Uh, Mum gave me a little diary when I was four years old um, to get that habit started, just recording little things from each day and back then, all I really had to write about was how many eggs I collected from the chickens. But, um, it, and then, of course, in the teenage years, it's all about boys and it's hilarious, obviously, to read back over. And uh, But I can see in hindsight that it's how I worked stuff out. It's how um, I got the insight about, yeah, I guess that nothing in the world really has meaning until we give it meaning and it's my choice, the meaning I give things. And so you know, a rough day at school, not that it's really rough, but at the time it feels like that. And you can see some of the meanings that you give things. And so the insight that that journaling um, of of my experiences or or insights or just flashes of information that come from watching a sunset, yeah, I capture those um, pretty much daily. Uh, There are some days that I miss, but um, yeah, mostly that's daily. And I love it. I love the process of that 
but I also love having it to look back on. Yeah, mm. yeah, it's interesting on where you're at. Is that something you take on the road? So you take oh, it yeah. with you? And- yeah, especially on aer- aeroplanes, pull it out of me massively. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think probably that's because the phone's off, no one can get hold of it, can get hold of us. Long may that last. I don't know how long that's going to last, but um yeah, aeroplanes do it. At the... I love aeroplanes. I have actually threatened yeah. to my husband. I said, there is going to come a day where I'm just going to get on a plane, fly to Melbourne, turn around and fly back just because I want <laughs> three hours on my own. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I think there's a strategy. I think it's probably yeah. worth paying the, the, the plane fee, fare to just go and do that, <laughs> be productive, yeah. get stuff done. You do. And that creative. It's um, a really creative space. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, <laughs> by the time this podcast comes out, you've got a book that's coming out like nearly immediately. Mm. Tell me a little bit about uh, what that new book is um, and what you hope that people who will um, have it and read it will get out of it. Uh, so there's three pillars to my work, the biochemical, the nutritional and the emotional, and most of my other books bring all of those three together. This next one, I'm singling out the nutritional component of it. So the book, title is the question that I get asked the most still to this very day at all my live events. And that is, what am I supposed to eat? (laughs) So (laughs) uh, the idea is that I want the book to end the confusion that people experience with food, because right now you could pick up a book that says eat bucket loads of carbohydrates because they're essential for energy. And then you'll find a book that says don't eat carbs because they'll make you fat and tired. Uh, People, I think, don't know whether to be low fat, high fat, low carb, paleo, vegan, keto. I think there's, there are, there are so many things out there that are really helping some people, but there's no one way for us all to eat. And our gut microbiome plays an enormous role in, in it. This, our genetics, our, our medical history, there's so much that influences the way we need to eat. So the book is designed to clear up the confusion that's out there around food and give people very a very practical guide about the way to nourish themselves and their families. Uh, it does look at emotional eating as well, so even, I can't help myself. Um, I know when you have a title the post, I know <laughs> the, the, me, I go, there's guilt when you, as soon as you say, I suppose. That's exactly, <laughs> yeah. should does that for me as yes, well. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so there's the big emotional, um, exploring the emotional eating component of that. So, And the essence of the message, it, it gives people very practical tips, of course, about nutritious food. So what are the foods that are really nutrient dense that the body on a physical, I call it the earth suit, uh, that the earth suit physically needs to survive. We can't fight our biological needs. So it covers meal ideas for all those things. But my ultimate goal with it, Ali, is to get people back in touch with trusting themselves. Because I think so much in this world now, everyone hands responsibility for their health, for, for so much about their lives over to other people and they're like, direct me, just tell me what to do. And I'm trying to get that we, the person who, there's a voice inside you that has your back better than anyone outside you. There is a voice inside you that knows when you need to go to bed, that knows that you need to stop and cook dinner, that knows that those emails actually don't matter tonight. You, they're going to be there tomorrow. So there's a voice inside all of us, yeah, who knows what's best for us. We just need to tune in and listen to her a lot more and and to trust that. And I think most people know what they need to eat. They just don't do it. And so the goal with the book is to give them practical advice, but also to remove the block in them being able to act on what they know is right for them. Exciting. And yeah, I can picture already, you know, people going, oh, okay, great. And the I in that title is actually, it's about me. Mm-hmm. And this is what I, I is going to be good for me and, and what, um, what energizes me and almost even tuning into how That's do I it. feel after it. Exciting. It. Congratulations as well. It's exciting. Oh, I imagine you. each new one that uh, you put out into the world and then the conversations that come with it. Mm. Um, again, back to your, your words. I want to ask you the question, if you could put any message on a billboard anywhere in the world, um, have you got an idea of what that message might be? Yes. Live every day in touch with how precious all of this is in touch with how precious life is, how precious you are and treat yourself accordingly. I feel like we're all born knowing that we're special, not in an egotistical way, just in a, in a, not in an arrogant way, just, we're just born with that knowing. And then we separate from that. And I feel like so many people spend the rest of their lives trying to feel like that again. And they do it in ways that are often really destructive to themselves. And uh, not everyone, but lots of people do. And I feel that if we could get back in touch 
yeah, with how precious life is and if we could live every day in touch with... If, if we knew who we are, we'd be in awe of ourselves. So if we could live yeah, a bit more in touch with that, we would make different choices and, and treat ourselves accordingly. Is there anything in particular that reminds you of that? And obviously that's a big part of just how you, how you live, how you turn up to the work that you do, but is there anything that... Um, or any is it people around you or is it kind of quotes is it um, practices that you have that remind you for you personally uh it's nature particularly the sky particularly the night sky yeah so it's very rare that I miss looking at the sky even if it's cloudy um every night yeah I go out and stand out there and there's part of it that um makes me feel really small and I don't mean that in a to in a put down kind of way but it makes uh, I just feel like everything is so enormous and so majestical. I know that's not a word, but it's a great word from Hunt for the Wilder People. <laughs> um, it's it's breathtaking to me every single night and I've, there's possibility in it. There's so much we don't understand. It fosters my curiosity. But, it, yeah, I, I somehow, yeah, I, I feel that it gets me in touch with my own appreciation for the fact that we get to have an earth suit and live on this planet and get to witness that stuff. Yeah. And somehow that experience makes me, yeah, appreciate myself. And yeah, it's, it's a nightly thing. Hmm. This uh, final question might tie into some of what you've just spoken about, but for the name of this podcast is called Standout Life. So if I were to offer that term up to you, what does it mean to you to live a standout life? Uh, being true to who I am. And that is... Uh, I think an ongoing quest for all of us, myself included, and I feel that so often uh, uh, who we really are can be masked so easily uh, trying to keep people happy or to fit in in certain relationships or uh, I can remember really soon after I graduated thinking, I feel like I have, particularly with the autism work, I I thought if I practice in the way that I know that I've witnessed works for these children, I, I will be ostracised. People will, you know, they, they, I, I didn't really fit back then with the with the crowd and, and so it was very challenging to be true to, yeah, myself and not just knowledge but, yeah, tr- just, yeah, and I'm an introvert by nature and uh, can go out in the world and do my speaking work and do th- do that stuff because I care so much and because I'm passionate about it and it's something that I feel like I was, yeah, put on the planet to do. It sounds cheesy, but it's how I say thanks for life is is by doing that. Uh, so, yeah, to the my, a standout life for me is, is, is being true to myself because in that I feel like I can, yeah, love, love the world. That's <laughs> for me what it's all about. Awesome. Well, thank you for living a standout life. And oh, thanks thank for you being too. part of the podcast. <laughs> thank you so much, Ali. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.